Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Hello, hello to our fantastic listeners. Today, it is I, Kosha, by myself giving the intro. Uh, My awesome sister and co-host, Shayla She, is unavailable, so you have me solo. Um, Let's see here. Let's see if I can give a good song that would be an intro for this podcast. I am speaking and today I'm speaking so low. You are listening and hopefully you're not so, so low. Um, that was a Kosha original. So you are welcome. Um, and I don't have Shayla she here to be rolling her eyes or laughing at me. So you're just gonna have to deal with that. Anyway, today, even though, um, Today, we have a conversation with someone who is incredibly dear to both of us, but is Shailushi's best friend in the whole world and really her platonic life partner. You've heard her name before. It is Dawn. And Dawn Munson talks to us today about being an engineer and more so being female in the engineering world, how she entered that world and how she has navigated that world since really since she was a kid. So she's hilarious. She is brilliant. And she truly was inspiring. And honestly, And honestly, her advice is short, it is sweet, and it is some of the best advice I have ever heard. I'm not going to go into any more detail because you just have to listen and enjoy Dawn Munson. She is speaking. Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory is a Department of Energy National Laboratory managed and operated by the University of California, engaged in fundamental unclassified research in the public interest. Neither the United States government nor any agency thereof, nor the regents of the University of California, nor any of their employees makes any warranty express or implied or assumes any legal responsibility for the accuracy, completeness, or usefulness of any information, apparatus, product, or process disclosed, 
or represents that its use would not infringe privately owned rights. Reference herein to any specific commercial product, process, or service by its trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the United States government or any agency thereof or the regents of the University of California. The views and opinions expressed herein do not necessarily state or reflect those of the United States government or any agency thereof or the regents of the University of California. All right, I'm, uh, I'm Dawn Munson, my pronouns are she, her, and I am speaking. One of our guests, <laughs> one of our guests got it wrong four times. Kept saying, and I am speaking? No, and am I speaking? And I was like, no, it's a statement, not a question. And then they did it again, but we were laughing too hard. And then he did it again and got it wrong. So it took four times. So it's not weird at all. Thank you for having me on later. We, we, yeah, we have all of these like, okay, don't do this. If you need to pee, tell me, you know, like there, there's someone who is like, it was probably five minutes to the end and was like, I've been trying to pee for an, or like, I've been wanting to pee for an hour. And I'm like, oh my God, like, that means you haven't been paying <laughs> attention to this for an hour. <laughs> uh, listeners, dear listeners, uh, you have definitely heard me reference John before. John is my best friend last season. Uh, I came out as being in a somewhat polyamorous relationship because John is my life partner. Yeah, I have known her for the better part, almost more than 20 years now. We've known each other for 20 years. Um, and it was, it was truly love at first sight. It was like we met and then we were never really apart from each other ever. Um, and we've had our ups and downs, but uh, even though I am now in Chicago and Dawn is still in the Bay Area in California, our friendship has not faded. And I know that my family loves her as much as I do. So it's so exciting to have you here talking to us about your professional experience. I can vouch, um, I and- can vouch for the fact that Shiloshi's family loves you dearly. As a representative of the rest of Shiloshi's family, Absolutely. You're kind of, we kind of took you. We adopted I love you, it. didn't we? Yeah, right from the very beginning. It's a very symbiotic relationship. The first time I met your family was after the, um, we spent New Year's together. And then you left a day before I did. And I was so nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be with her parents. I've never met them before. I'm staying an extra night. They're going to have to take me to the airport. And it was, it was like nothing, all this, I was so stressed out about it. And then they dropped me off at the airport and I was like, I don't even know what happened in the last day. I just hung out. You're like, bye mom. (laughs) You sat at the, you sat at the, on the family head table at our brother's wedding and very appropriately. So, so yeah, you're definitely one of us. You're a Bakshi. Yes. You really are the redheaded stepchild in this case. (laughs) Right. And, and I, you know what? I couldn't be prouder. Ah, like Kosha said, our family loves you too, but we are not here to have a mutual love fest. No, we're not. We are here to talk about 
Dawn's experience in engineering, being a female engineer. Let's let's start with where you are now, and then we'll go backwards and move forward a little bit. So tell us what's going on with you right now. So, uh, well, right now I'm I'm in the process of applying for my boss's job. He retired this summer. While I am not entirely sure that it's a job I would want, uh, I feel like it's an exercise to go through for my own growth and sort of facing down rejection fears and um, self-worth questions. And so that is one part of what is going on right now. The other part is that in, in the last six months, I've gotten a group and hired three people and now supervise four people with another person coming on board um, in December. The job itself is one that I saw a need for about 20 years ago and focused on fixing a problem that people didn't know existed. So the job is, is building equipment, engineering supports, building equipment for um, scientific research and, and engineering supports that through the design and then the manufacturer. We didn't really have anyone who would go between our vendors and our procurement process. So, so we, would end, we didn't have any continuity across that. And what one of the biggest issues was that our suppliers who make this incredible equipment, but often it's, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars and it takes years to build, they wouldn't necessarily know who to call. So they might have a relationship with a scientist. So they might call the scientist and say, we wanna make a change to this piece of equipment to make it easier to manufacture or whatever. And the scientist would okay it, but the engineer had not allowed for the design change and there was no communication in that. And our procurement, our procurement department was sort of like, well, that's out of our territory we don't know the technical parts of this and we just manage the contractual parts of it. So no one would take responsibility for that piece of the communication and the process. Correct. In the, the, the example, which we, it was a piece of equipment that took two years to build and it was a quarter of a million dollars. And, and the scientist called the, the supplier and said, I wanna make a change. I wanna add this, this feature and, and they had a long-term relationship from you know, conferences and, and such. And so the supplier made the change. And then when the piece of equipment arrived, the engineer looked at it and says, well, we can't, we can't use this. You know, this feature has been added and it makes this, it, it makes it that we can't implement it in the system. And, and then it became, a legal battle right now we've lost two years and all this money and who's responsible is it is it on us because we made a change well we didn't spell out who was going to be able to be authorized to make the change is it on the company because they moved forward without authorization but we don't have a process that says what the authorization is so i just saw this need and i worked with our procurement department to establish now all of our contracts have what's called the technical representative. I, I explain it a little bit like a translator. They are the person that takes information from the scientists and the engineers and relays it to procurement um, 
that relays it to the vendor. So, and then the, the vendor or the supplier has a single point of contact. And we tell our suppliers, right, in our contracts, you do not take technical direction from anyone but this person. So that there is this clear chain of command. There's a very clear process about contracts get changed through the procurement person, technical changes go through the technical representative. And so I did that for years and my time was always in demand. And, and it was everything from writing requirements documents, taking scientific requirements and boiling them down into what the actual engineering requirements were to missing dimensions on drawings that, that vendors needed. The, the demand for my time was always huge from, from the very beginning. It was always, it was always big. I have always thought that, that it deserved its own department. And, and this is some, this is an area that I think is, is very challenging in the field because it's very difficult actually to find people who are technically minded, who understand um, the thought process behind the engineering, but can speak to suppliers and engineers and scientists and procurement. And often also our technicians who are assembling hardware because we end up being the go-between uh, for the vendors and maybe our technicians that are doing assembly work. So in February, the team got formed for this technical representative group. So there are four people in the group and, and we're hiring another one in December. And that their time is already mapped out at 100% through 2024. So there was obviously much more demand than, um, than even I anticipated. So that's well, where love, I'm at now. So you saw the need 20 years ago and six months ago you formed the team. So it got fast-tracked. <laughs> it is government work. Yeah, exactly. That's fairly fast. That's super fast. I'm so impressed. <laughs> well, there was, there was a lot that went into making that to making it happen no, finally. I, I know. It's just that stuff moves like molasses, you know? I know that, that Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and Stanford are working on this really big project. Do you feel like that was also part of the impetus for getting this team like up and going? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because this is the project that, we, that we're in work now is uh, an upgrade for the advanced light source, which is a synchrotron radiation source at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. It was the first third generation light source built in the US. And at the time when it was commissioned in 95, 90, 94, 95, it was state of the art, top of the field. It was the best place to go for this kind of um, electron beam source. Um, now it's one of the few remaining third generation light sources. Three years ago, we got seed money to start the investigation to upgrade. And I think, yeah, it was about a year ago that we got our first round of real funding to buy equipment. So, and that's definitely part because this is a program that, that the equipment will be built and installed on site, which means there's a lot to manage on site. And it's, it's really, we're gonna be pulling out the basically the entire the entire machine and replacing it uh, and uh, in a one year time frame. So the management of all of the 
the work and the contracts and everything that's going to go into that is is huge. Yeah. Um, but but also since then we got two other large scale projects for one for a dark matter investigation and one for a telescope. And those are going to be 10 year long projects and they're already asking for this kind of support as well. So the need has definitely been demonstrated across projects. And, you know, honestly, I take a lot of credit for that. The project that we did with with um, Stanford to help them upgrade their linear light source, which was also a 10-year project, went extremely well. It involved a lot of managing of vendors and coordinating. And I think that really made it stand out as how important and, and helpful the role could be. So losing $250,000 in two years didn't demonstrate how important it could be? Well, I got the contract changed. We got the contract changed. That's, there you go. That, was, that was the important part of that. I feel like that right there, it's like just an obvious hole, right? Where it's like, I could, I could call your vendor and be like, this is Dr. Ritchie calling from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. I, I'm a junior researcher on this project. I need, I need this hole to be two centimeters larger. Nobody would be able to trace that necessarily because the vendor would be like, oh, okay, fine, two centimeters larger, whatever. I'm just imagining that that could be catastrophic. Absolutely, absolutely. $250,000 is a great example of why having this, you know, central point of contact that's really triaging everything is important. I do also remember you telling me a story about how even recently how this didn't happen. And the piece of equipment was too big to get through the door. Yes, right. And that was my first question. Has anyone measured the door? Wow. And, and I couldn't believe it. We had, they had already ordered the equipment. I mean, it really is that people are talking in their own bubbles and there's no cross communication. Right. But you're like, but this piece of equipment does amazing things, but it can't get in the building. So we can't do anything with it. <laughs> It's less of the job now, but in the beginning, it was, there was a lot of, okay, well, now we have something that has come from the supplier and it goes into storage because the project isn't necessarily ready. And what we found a long time ago was that stuff would go into storage and then just get lost. I mean, very Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing. It would just get put in a warehouse and then things either wouldn't be opened or wouldn't be, you know, checked for quality until it was, until we would, they were ready to be used. But if you have somebody who's the point of contact who says, well, I'm going to make sure that our technical requirements are met before our supplier gets paid, that means that somebody has to go and I, and locate the package, open it, you know, look at it, at least do a visual check. And, and at the time we were doing that, we didn't have a QA department that would take care of those things. And I, now we do, but it's still fledgling, right? It's still coming up. So obviously I have been busy for 20 years. There's never been a time when my, I wasn't in demand in some way. So there's definitely has been a need. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what you do now, but Talk about how, let's go back and like rewind to the beginning and talk about how you even started thinking about engineering. Where, what motivated you to think about going into engineering at all? Uh, well, that's, I think even before you get to that, you, I think we 
I, I backtrack even further to the point of being an only child for the first, you know, five or six years on a farm where there weren't, so I wasn't going to school, right? I was a kid, I was a kid and I was by myself and, and um, obviously had parents, but without siblings. And there was a lot of, and we didn't have a TV. So there was a lot of like self-entertainment and that came often in the form of taking things apart but also in the like, hey, I have an idea. And I mean, the one that I remember is, and I don't, I'm sure I've told you this, Shalu. I wanted, I built a bird feeder from an, a milk carton, you know, like the half <laughs> milk carton and very predictive of my future self, just told my mom what to do. Cut this here, cut that there. <laughs> uh, you, need, you need three buttons and- So you some- designed- a bird feeder. Yeah. Yeah. I directed. You engineered right. a bird yeah. feeder and then you sent it off to technical department to have it manufactured. Right. For procurement yes. and manufacturing. <laughs> All right. So, I, but I was always, I always wanted to be hands on something, uh, whether that was, um, you know, riding horses and, and, you know, you take, you take all your tack apart and you clean it and you put it all back together. And that's, just part of part of the process but when I really decided was we my family moved uh to big city in Arizona and and we were I went to a private Catholic school through scholarship and volunteering and cleaning and we were I could not in any way keep up with the my compatriots at high school they they were from families that had more means and 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 that was one thing but then it was also just watching my parents struggle financially struggle and I can remember I took a mechanical drafting class in high school and um and I had a really great math teacher who challenged me when I first started high school and I kind of sailed through the first semester and she pulled me aside and, and said, you know, I'm on to you. You can do so much more. You're smarter than this. And, um, and here's the path that I'm putting forward for you so that when you're a senior, you'll be in AP calculus because I think you can do it. And I think you need the challenge. So those two things were going on in high school, but I remember I went to the I went to the big downtown library and started researching jobs. I went in with the idea, I'm good at math. I like the drawing. I don't want to be poor. And, and engineering sort of found its way. It makes, it made the most sense given those things. It fit all those boxes. Yeah. Yes. And because of my, my interest in the way things go together and the way things work and it just made sense to go for mechanical engineering. And, it, and I was 15 when I made that decision. So when I applied for colleges the next year, I was already declaring what my major was going to be. And it was after that that I found out that my, both of my grandfathers, both maternal and paternal grandfathers, had engineering backgrounds. Um, My mom's dad did not have a degree in engineering, but he was part of the original patent holder for the concrete pumping 
machines. Wow. And yeah, I have, I, I have his gold watch from his retirement from that company. But my dad's dad started college in mechanical engineering and then had to quit because of the depression. But he also worked and put his brother through electrical engineering college. So there is this familial background that might that might explain some of the interest. I don't know. I don't know how much of that is hereditary, but definitely the math skills were all there. Yeah. I know that you were close to one of your grandfathers. Do you feel like that that relationship also helped build your interest in engineering? So it was my dad's dad, my paternal um, grandfather. When he retired, he rebuilt cars at, at home. I mean, that was like one of his hobbies. So I think it was it was twofold, possibly. I mean, I always wanted to be a part of that and I wasn't, that was not something girls did. So I think there was partially some like, I want to do that and I want to prove that that, you know, girls can do that. There was also just some, I bet I can do that. I bet I can do that better. That mentality has suited, has has done well for me too. I mean, it's brought some challenges as well, but. So here we are, we're at 16. You're declaring to go into engineering for college. Uh, what was college like? You, we can skip over some of the applying and the where you decided to go, but you eventually did go to Northern Arizona University. So what was college like? I ended up at NAU because I got the best scholarship. They gave me the best scholarship. The other state schools, I would have had to pay more. So that was that's, that completely drove the decision on where to go. And, and I, think, I think for the first year, two years, it was probably very similar to everyone's college experience, right? If you figure out you figure out living with people that aren't your family and you figure out like how to manage yourself and what that looks like. And, you know, those first two years, at least for engineering are all, no matter what your, your, your major is discipline is, they're all pretty much the same. It's math, lots of math, it's physics, lots of physics. At the end of that, my second year, I started I started the more I started more of the engineering focused classes. And that was when I had my first class where I was the only woman in the class. And that it was a computer programming class and I was the only woman and I think there were probably I mean there were less than 100 people in it but but more than 50. And the professor posed a question and called on me to answer it and I answered it and and it was wrong. It was wrong. And the professor said, well, that's what I get for calling on the woman in the room. And I was so shocked. And actually, Shailu, that is how I met my friend Brian, who I am still good friends with, because he was someone who came up to me afterwards, where I, I think after the class, I was walking around fish mouthed, right? Just like, did that happen? I thought, I really thought we were beyond that. And, and Brian approached me and said, you know, that was not okay. That was not cool at all. And that's how we met. And we're still, we're still friends, but that, that was kind of the, 
the splash of cold water that was, um, no, engineering is going to be different. But that was also the semester that I took one of my last physics classes and met a couple of guys who would come to be best friends, like brothers. And we formed a study group and slowly grew into six or seven of us. And, and we were all really close the rest of school, really close um, and still are actually, but they were always my peers. There was never any question with those guys that I was an equal, which has surprised me as I've gone through my professional career because I, I went to school with people who thought of me as peer, who respected me as a peer, who still do. There were people in my peer group in my professional career who did not feel that way. And I, I have often wondered, well, what happened? Is it, is it, you know, there's a whole chicken egg question. Is it an environment that fosters that kind of thinking or is that kind of thinking in place? And then it creates an environment where ha having those kind of attitudes are not, are, are much more accepted in that environment. And I, you know, I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. Well, it's hard to have an answer, right? Cause it's hard to tell. Are people attracted to sexist, racist, whatever environments because they are already have those attitudes in their head and that just allows them to vocalize it um, or is it that people might be on you know sort of very malleable their attitudes might be very formable um, and that the environment that already exists which is places like highly scientific institutions you know, women are only, you know, I'd say really 50 years into actually working in those places. They've existed for 200 years. Those, you know, women are still pioneers in a lot of those places. And so is it that we're still actually, you know, undoing a lot of the just inherently sexist thinking? And so it's there and then people like lean into it a bit, or is it that the people create the environment, which is, it is a chicken and egg problem. And it's also an unsolvable problem in the way that it's like, well, how would we ever know unless we went back to the beginning of whenever and then like did two, you know, did two parallel tracks for one that had women in it, one that didn't. It's really hard to tell what what's actually causing what or what's exacerbating what. And to a certain extent, like at this point, what is learning the answer to that question really gonna give us? We just need to break the cycle. Someone needs to be like, no, women do this and it's not okay for you to think that way. But I'm just going to add on to, is it that this has been around for so long and women are kind of new? I do know in government work, because we, you and I have talked about this and um, I work for a big corporation, so not in government, but we have a pension and government workers have a pension. And so there is a huge um, incentive for you to stick around for a really long time for your career, right? Like decades. So I'm just, you know, wondering how, cause I know there's so many people in my company who are like, I've been here for 35 years. They've been around forever. There's so many of those people who have been around for 35 years that, that those ideas never get shuffled out. And that comes with like scientific discovery and experience and expertise, but it also comes from like socio-emotional ideas of how people are supposed to be. 
Absolutely. You know, we have so many people that are so smart and so curious that even when they do retire after all that time, they often still come back paid or not paid just to be a part of it, just to keep, because that's what they're curious about. That's what they're interested in. You know, if you are 60 years old, let's say not you, someone is 60 years (laughs) old (laughs) and you know, they are on the start of this project. That's going to take 10 to 15 years and they're ready to retire. Like that's hard to give up. So that might be one of the callbacks too, is like, no, no, no. I've been working on this for 10 years. I'm going to come back after I retire to make sure, see the follow through of it. So there's this constant like revisit of these old dudes. Absolutely. Yep. I think that is definitely part of it. Good for a little bit. We're going to jump back to college. What was the rest of your engineering experience? Like, did you ever have an experience like that again? Or were you know, I'm sure that there were other classes where you were the only woman in the room. Was it a little easier because you were with peers and you felt supported by them? Or was it harder because you knew that you were going to go into it being like, I'm probably going to be the only woman taking this class? It was definitely more that I was with peers. I never had, I, I don't remember ever having issues with my peers, whether they were... Uh, mechanical or electrical or computer science, we were, I think in that sense, we were all in battle. Everybody is, everybody is just trying to get through this degree program and I don't win anything by cutting someone else down. But I also think that, that my core group, my core group of friends who were all men um, and, and study partners that, you know, we went through all our classes together they did so much for me because I was not window dressing for our study groups. I was a valuable part of studying, of doing homework. And, and, I, and I can still point to each one of those guys, each one of those men and say, this is what this person brought to that study group. And I felt valuable and important, not because I, of my gender, but because, because I was smart, because I... I understood something that maybe someone else didn't, or I could explain it, or, or even in engineering college, most professors will start out in the beginning with a, this is how you do your homework, which sounds very simple, but it is, you will put your name at the top on the far left-hand side, it will be in all capital letters. You will put the date immediately under that. You will put the class immediately under that. You will underline that whole thing two times with a straight edge. So even if it was just that, well, Dawn's homework is really neat and she knows how all the different classes want it. I had value in that and not just because of my gender. It wasn't like, oh, let's take pity on her and invite her to hang out with us. It was like, oh my God, we need you to tell us what we're supposed to be doing here. I forgot. Is it one line or two lines or what goes first, the class or the date or, or I'm sorry, I don't understand this thermodynamics concept. Can you explain it to me? Uh, the thermodynamics was one of my weaker points, but yes. Well, <laughs> I, could, <laughs> I said that for a reason because I knew I that. feel like you knew that and you just tried to yes. dig into your best friend right there. <laughs> was it the thermodynamics, Don? Well, it wouldn't be me interviewing Dawn if there wasn't something like that somewhere. <laughs> yes, that's true. I did know that. I, did, I knew that because I always think about that and I was like, 
this stuff is hard. It was super hard for me. But then if you're like, I can't even imagine it at a level of engineering where I was like, ugh. No, that was the same reaction that we all had, which was, wait, what just, what? No, <laughs> this is yucky. Can we not do this? I don't want to. Yeah, I not. I'm not going to heat anything up. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Nothing will get hot or cold. <laughs> we'll keep it all the same temperature. It doesn't matter. I prefer to just be at stasis. All right. Just yes. leave me alone. Then you graduated and I know you went to Boeing. I did. I interned at Boeing for two summers and then I went to Boeing. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about interning at Boeing. What was that like? And then when you went there? Um, interning at Boeing was fantastic. Actually, the intern program at Boeing in Seattle at the time, I can't speak to it now, but at the time was amazing. They brought in students from all over the country, from all different kinds of schools. It wasn't just, you know, the MITs. It was small schools. It was um, it was HBCs, um, and they arranged for they arranged for our apartments. They, I mean, so we had roommates that were from different parts of the country that had different backgrounds. Uh, my first summer, I lived with a woman who was from Kansas and she was, I think she was civil. Um, and then the next- Civil engineering, year, I, not civil to you. Yes, civil engineering. <laughs> Well, she was civil I mean, to me too. She but was from she was a yeah, person. She was from Kansas, but she was an asshole. No, <laughs> no, no, she, she, she wasn't. No, she, she wasn't. wasn't. Lady, you're out there. She was a civil engineering. And then the next year it was uh, computer science, two other women, uh, computer science and electrical. Uh, but but Boeing, they tried very hard to make sure that you could rotate through different departments. And then they had activities for, for all the interns. So we would have, you know, every other week there would be some sort of like competition where it's, you know, build a glider, something like that, or... And then they would do all kinds of social stuff as well. And, you know, we got speakers and um, they did, the program did a lot to try and provide a wide view of what the jobs were, of what the environment was like, um, really cultivating that the next generation of who was going to come and work for Boeing. I, I mean, I... Yeah, I can't say enough good things about what that program was like. It was hard, but it was good. Well, and that sounds really awesome because it wasn't like, oh, go do some stuff. It was like, it was a program. It was an internship program that had been well thought out. It was like being in school in, in a different way. It was like a practical school, not yeah. theoretical school, right? So as opposed to some internships, which is like, oh, we're not really sure what you're going to do. You're going to shadow this person for a while. And then you, we have this project for you to work on. And then you make coffee for people for two years at, and then maybe get offered a job, right? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound like that at all. And and you would go, like, there were places in my rotation through different jobs that were a little like, okay, there's nothing to do here. They haven't thought out what this, what my role is going to be. There was always the next, you always knew you were going to move on to the next thing. So it wasn't, it wasn't painful. Although I have to say one of the funniest things looking back on the, those internships now was um, in one of those positions where I did not, the tasks were not 
well-defined. Someone said to me, so, so we have this thing, um, we have this thing now called the internet. So go sit down and um, take a look at it and I, come back and tell us what it's good for. Cause we don't really know what it's good for. And I, I have to laugh about that now. Like nothing, it's good for camp videos. I was gonna say, did you tell them camp videos? <laughs> Cat videos and memes, that's it. But probably at that time, there wasn't even cat videos. Oh my no, God, can you no. imagine? How could you take a video that would be small enough to then upload it onto a computer and put it on the interwebs? Like there were camcorders back then. You couldn't upload a cat video. Yeah, exactly. But that's really funny. I do remember you telling me that. And I was like, I don't know. It's It's got addresses in it. Yeah, I mean, you can find people. <laughs> yeah. This is actually, this is another thing that I did during that. I was in that rotation and it's, I'm trying now with onboarding new people a at the time. And this was really common there. There were these large printed books and, and by large, I mean, like they were like probably 18 inches tall and there, and, and a company would buy a set of them, the Thomas register. And, and so so a company like Boeing would buy a, a, a full set and it's basically like the yellow pages for manufacturing companies. So they would list all of the manufacturing companies throughout the country. And then you as a, as a supplier, you could take out an ad and, and then they were all organized by capability, by name. And I remember, you know, looking for companies that could do things in these giant books. Well, now it, it's I'm trying to explain it was a book <laughs> to to the to the new people and they just look at me with that you know like that cartoon blink blink what because it's all online now it's same idea but... Can you now I want to do the opposite but ask the same question to your team is be like there's this thing called the internet go to it take a look and tell me what it's good for and see what they have to say that would be so fun I thought you were going to say, give them the book and say, tell me what this is good for. Well, it's also really fascinating. It's like, you know, if you ask someone to look, to find something in like the Dewey Decimal catalog, in like a library catalog, or like use the phone book, they would be like, I don't, I don't know how this thing works. Um, and I, we were just talking about the internet the other day, which is like, it's almost like too good now. And I don't mean that really, but it's like, if going to Google, if you don't have exactly the right set of search terms, then you end up like, you know, it's like this difference between a degree when you start, but going out, it's like, ends up being like a huge difference where I'm like, no, I'm not looking for like snowshoes. I'm looking for snow boots. Apparently those are two very different things, right? Yeah. Yes. But the, the difference between a snow boot and a snow shoot when you start is like so small, but the search terms are like so far away that you're like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to find this thing if I don't know exactly the right thing to find. At least with the book, you're like, like there's a limited universe. You could hold it down. Look yes, <laughs> yes. Or be like, well, I might have to look at every single entry, but it's not going to be outside of the book. The Thomas Register still exists in the form of a website for exactly that reason, so that you don't have to go to a general search and say, well, I wanna know about this special kind of welding and who near me does it. I mean, in that case, what you end up with is here, 
here is, uh, you know, this person named Bob who does artistic welding down the street. And uh, like, that's not, that is not helpful for what I'm looking for. You get a really fancy mailbox from Bob. Real fancy. Right. <laughs> but that is not going to hold vacuum. Yeah, right. Well, Bob, we don't know that, sweetie. Hey, you don't know Bob's work. You know what he's doing. It's a good point. I should probably call and review his portfolio. Yeah, that's right. Because the equipment that he makes could be awesome and very beautiful. Probably. Yeah. So you went to work at Boeing then after, after two years of internship and you went to work at Boeing. What was that like? It was good. It was actually, it was, it was wonderful. I got to, I got to be part of the, be part of the testing team for the FAA certification of the 777 before it was certified to fly commercial. And that was, I mean, I think to some extent that is in a lot of ways, every mechanical engineer's dream because it was break stuff. It was take a landing gear assembly and figure out how to operate it so that it, it comes down and then you put enough load on the bottom so that you're pushing against it to simulate what it would be like if it was landing on a runway. And you're going to do that. Uh, this is just an example. I don't remember the exact numbers, but you're going to do that 50,000 times and make sure it holds up. Yeah. It, or until it breaks. Right. And when it breaks at 5,000 cycles, then you've got a real problem. Right. And then what do you do? So it was landing gear cycling. It was um, wing deformation. So pulling, pulling wings off of the, not off, but putting a load enough of a load on the wings to try and separate them from the fuselage which which you do you just do and then you measure what it took and see if that's something that is going to happen in in the real world but it's also one of the reasons if you're on a plane and you look out and you see on the window and it says no step that's because someone has already figured out that that is not a good load point right you're like someone like me that shit for you. Figured out that you should don't stand, stand there. there. Yeah. Right. One of my uh, younger kids' favorite things, so I always tell him that you did when you were at Boeing, is use the chicken gun. Yes. And I think our listeners would love to hear about the chicken gun. Even Kosha doesn't. I need know to about know the about the chicken gun. gun. It's so awesome. Did you shoot chickens at something? A cannon. It's a cannon. Part of the testing for fuselages and engines is a bird test. There, it, it is very much like a, like a cannon. It's a pressurized chamber. So you you put you build up pressure in this chamber, and then you put a bird carcass uh, thawed. They're not alive. They're dead or frozen. I like that. You're like it's thawed. Well, someone made that mistake. There, where where the where the chicken gun was, there was a big freezer when it had ducks ducks and geese and turkeys and chickens, fowl. It had all kinds of fowl and you had to thaw them first and someone learned. I mean, there's a reason that was part of the process because someone didn't. And that's really bad because a frozen, a frozen turkey will go, will do a lot of damage. Will it go through the body of the airplane or will it like seriously dent it at least? I think on, on, the the story that I always heard was that it went through it went through the fuselage, but it was an old plane. It wasn't one of the one of the new ones. But Boeing at the time had I think two or three of them of these things, and they were on 
you could put them on a railroad car and you know the military used them they would lease them out to other companies to but yeah it was basically a company would be like can i use one of those i'll pay you <laughs> well yeah, other companies build airplanes and right right, uh, right, north right. Of Drummond and and so the point there was not just for fun but to <laughs> see if the fuselage could withstand if like a goose actually flew into it in the air right okay yes or like that's sucked into the engine. Right. And and engines are designed to have like a certain amount of breakaway on their fins, mm -hmm. you know, so that you, so you want to make sure that it's functioning the way it's designed. So it's not just about like, well, that it's not going to get stuck in there, but that we, we've designed it to have this kind of failure mm -hmm. so that it maintains. And so you want to verify that. Right. And that's verifying design happens in all different ways, but the chicken gun was, I mean, that was, that was fun. Did people argue about who got to use the chicken gun that time? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I totally would. I'd be like, it's my turn. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. You got it last Tuesday, Karen. <laughs> yeah. There's something inherently like, uh, Acme comics yes. about like shooting a chicken out of something. Like, yes. I'm not in any lifetime in this person going to be an engineer with this headspace going to be an engineer but man i would love to do that too well yeah i i mean i agree i'm listening to dawn and i'm like i should have been an engineer and not any part of her story except for the fact that <laughs> she got to break plane parts on purpose and use a chicken gun yeah. right yeah i know in fact that would be a great fundraiser the chicken gun yeah it would be Although I, I do think that probably um, there would be some animal rights. I mean, Boeing did not spend a lot of time advertising that because I guess there had been some protests about it. But but the question in my mind is, well, we can sacrifice mm -hmm. some some fowl, not protected fowl, but fowl that's raised for science, right? To make sure a plane is safe or we can, we can not check it and deal with, the consequences yes. of that the literal fallout the foul out <gasps> oh i'm so mad at you for coming up with that because <laughs> i did it and fallout was <laughs> fallout was pretty good but foul out was so much better <laughs> that no one cares that i said fallout because dawn said foul out oh that was good <laughs> so you were there for a couple years right and then you're like this one just one. I thought you were there for mm -mm, two years. Just I one. do know that that you were like got moved to a different department, and then you're like, no, this is not going to work out well. I I got moved to um, overhead bin design. That sounds it. That your face is telling us that it's as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> well, at the time, the seven 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 had just been released. A new plane takes 12, 15 years to develop. So there were there weren't going to be any new overhead bins number 1 for design in the near future. And number 2, I know it has been a while since we were all on planes, but when was the last time you saw innovation in the overhead bin? I was on a plane last week and I didn't notice any innovation. Like there's the same overhead bin design that Shayla she and I had when we were going to India. There's one. There's only one that there's some planes that have the roller bags that you can stick in wheels first. Uh, mm -hmm. 
three of them can fit instead of two of them can fit. But that is the only thing I remember ever seeing differently. And then also it's not even consistent. No, exactly. Because it's about the airlines will order their overhead bins. They, they spec out. Oh, they don't come on the plane. It's like a separate thing. They, there is, it's very much like a car, right? I want overhead bins. A, let's remember that I'm speaking from 25 years ago. So all of this might have changed, but the airlines also specify how much room you get front to back, side to side. You might have one airline that provides a little bit more and they charge that way. I know one, another airline that provides a lot less and they charge that way. Overhead bins tend to be the same way. I did not know. I just assumed that it was like, here's the model, here's the plane. I didn't know that you, there was any kind of, and of course, again, the, with the disclaimer that it may not be that way now, but when you were in Boeing, I didn't understand, I had no idea that they used to be like, uh, we want this and this and this, this is a base model. And then we want to change this out and change this out as opposed to being like, here's what you get. We designed this whole plane to go together. The, like the galleys change. I'm, you guys have flown internationally enough to know that sometimes you have a galley in the center and sometimes you know you have one at each end and sometimes you have two in the center. And all of that is specked out by, by the airlines or was. Did you know, this is just a random point of information that when they were first making commercial airlines, one of the biggest problems was the floor because women with their high heel shoes would come in and have these point, these um, high load pressure points on the floor and the floors were not designed to handle. That was actually one of the first design issues that came in for commercial airlines. They weren't designed to handle heels basically. Exactly. And essentially all of the flight attendants are, were women up until relatively recently. So yep. that became an issue very quickly, I can imagine. Well, and people dressed to fly, right? So you would dress nicely. So it was also, it was your passengers too. I do remember when we were, Kosh and I were young and we were going to India, there was, you know, they changed at some point, but certainly when we were, it's like, you need to wear nice clothes to get on the plane. Uh, we were allowed to wear tennis shoes, but like no sweats. Like you had to wear like nice, a nice outfit. Yeah. I, I remember that too. I, and I still am a little like, okay, I'm going to wear the comfortable clothes, but I need to look at least not like I rolled out of bed. Yeah. Right. Like, okay, well at least like, do I look like I'm wearing an outfit that I, like, if I went out of the house, I wouldn't be embarrassed for people to see me. In. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So then, so you're like, oh, overhead bins, not for me. Nothing's going to happen here. This is like, this is the place where people go to end their careers. <laughs> <laughs> Let me curl up in the overhead bin and please take me away from here. I will fit. But it sounds like the internship program was pretty inclusive, pretty, like you weren't like the token woman. How about, no. how about working there? Was it, was it different? Was it pretty international still? A, a big diverse, like diverse group, or did you feel like token? There was only one group that I felt sort of token like, and that was on the, it was on more of the military side, but it, and that I think was, I'd like to believe that that was more a function of the, who, the people who were in the group already. They were older 
men who had been in the job for some time. I've, in fact, I remember one was counting down days to retirement. So I think there was just a mentality, whether it was that they were entrenched in the job or whether they had been there so long, you know, that they had, you know, started a job in world at the end of World War II and, and it just never, they never experienced the diversity. I, it is, it, it, that is hard to say. I, the, it's funny, I haven't thought about this in a really long time, but I did have in another group, one engineer who refused to work with me it was it was for a test protocol and and i i give i will give my manager at the time a lot of credit because he said you will work with her and make this a productive endeavor or you will not work on this project at all and that was that we were polite to one another mm. it was never a, but it was never a collegial kind of relationship right off the bat, you know that this person doesn't want to be working with you and that the working with you is really, it's a twisting of the arm. So you're only gonna get literally as much as it takes to get the job done. Right. Right, it's very like, yes, no, here it is. Send me your stuff, like that's it. It's not even gonna be like, hey, how's your weekend? It's very, no. Where are you on this project? Or how, where are you on these drawings? End of story. Like there's not no highs on the email or whatever. Transactional, yeah. right? It's transactional. Yes, very much. Where's the report? Did you finish that task? That, that's it. But the rest of the group was, the rest of even that group is at least more willing to be flexible. Oh, absolutely. Was, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the rest of that group was actually, was, was fantastic. My experience at Boeing was great. Their intern program draw was super diverse. I think that especially at the time, because of just, you know, as there weren't many women going through engineering, as many going through engineering. So it was a predominantly white male environment, but, but it did feel at the time very much like there was, that the company itself was very interested in building diversity and taking that step forward. Right. So not just having like a DEI council, right. Not just having a group, but actually making the investment in growing the diversity. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Making it a priority, making it and making it important within the, uh, within the groups themselves as well. You know, as we've learned so much in the last you know, five to seven years, which is you can have lots of diversity, but if your environment, the policy, the way people talk to each other, the way people manage each other, what people are allowed to get away with and not get away with has a huge effect on what diversity, like what diverse candidates stay or are attracted to an organization. But secondly, like how much of that quote unquote diversity actually gets expressed. If you're a, you know, if you're like white woman coming from, you know, growing up in rural Arizona, you're in Seattle, but the, the dominant culture is cisgendered white man coming from big city. If those are the only ways that you can be accepted in the workplace, that's not diversity. You can be all colors and all genders, but if you have to act a certain way, that's not really diversity. You just, that's, you know, that's visual diversity. Right. Are you a woman, but you have to act masculine? 
you can't cry. You can't wear heels, right? Like, why are you wearing a skirt? Or you have to wear a skirt because you're a woman. Like, yeah. that they're firm, there's a firm structure or a set of rules that any woman or any type of diversity has to act. And we're still talking about corporate culture here. So a lot of the things that, for example, crying, I imagine there's still a big, there's still like don't cry in the workplace because we're still talking corporate culture 20 years ago. Yes. Right. So, but this idea that like the only a certain type of person was acceptable to be in the room, I think that's the very beginning of it. I have not kept in touch with anyone who stayed at Boeing. I mean, sadly enough, there was a huge uh, round of layoffs for the next, the year, about a year and a half to two years after I left. I would like to think that they have continued down that path because the potential for making a big difference was was there. Absolutely. Just not an overhead bin design. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you there's really hard to diversify in the overhead bin design. <laughs> I'm literally like, I'm still like, why would you even employ people to do that? Like nothing, like you said, nothing has really changed. It's like two or three potential type A, type B, type C, and then there's nothing different. Like, why would you even employ people to do that? Because because they have to be designed around the rest of the plane. Mm. So it's really, would you say, we're talking way too much about overhead <laughs> being designed, but, but, but being, being the, so it's like, this is the overhead for the plane, the top of the plane, it's not the roof, but you know, the top of the plane has shifted two inches down. So we need to, shift, change the dimensions so that people don't whack their heads on the overhead bin mm -hmm. or that it's not like, you know, it's not like too far, right? But it's not innovation, it's adjustment. Oh, well, this one goes, it needs to be a little bit shorter or it needs to be rounder on this side. The slow open ones, Ooh. I think there was innovation there. That's true. Oh, I don't, yeah. I don't remember a, a world fast open. where it just like fell down on you. <laughs> But well, you know, the kind that in general where you push the button and they pop up, sometimes they pop up and they're like, Boom. oh, oh, yeah. OK, wait, As some, of them, some of them come down and some of them pop up. Did you yeah. do that? No, oh, I did okay. not. I did not. I did not. I had no I, I had no part uh, in overhead bin design. <laughs> you know, you could tell us that you did. And we would be like, oh, my God, this God. No. <laughs> thank you. All right. OK. The end of our discussion about overhead bins at Boeing. Uh, so overhead bin not going anywhere. So then you're like, I can't be here anymore because this is not going to be satisfying to me. It was that, and it was, I was not prepared for the short days and the rain after living in Arizona for the beginning of my life. So Seattle itself was hard for you. It was, it was, it was great, but I don't, I, I was not prepared for that. I had a professor that I had TA'd for my, um, fluid dynamics professor and and he said, well, I'm going to, um, I was applying for jobs in Arizona. I thought I wanted to move back to Arizona. And um, this professor said, well, I'm going to be in San Jose for a conference. Why don't you, why don't you mail me a bunch of your resumes? Because that was what you did. You didn't tell them what the internet was good for. No, obviously I let them <laughs> down by not informing them about what the internet was good for. So I, I, I mailed him a stack of resumes and he handed them out at this conference that he was at, at in San Jose and um and the lab called me which was surprising 
and I, so I had two interviews in the space of a couple of weeks. One was for a company in Arizona, which I really thought I wanted to work for. Um, and I felt like that interview went really well. And then I interviewed at the lab and I felt like that interview went horribly. Uh, it was, um, it was just a comedy of errors in the, um, flew, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, changed clothes in the airport bathroom, because you don't want to travel in your suit and went through every single pair of pantyhose, pantyhose, let's review. <laughs> there are these things, they have feet, they're like leggings, but they have feet and you used to wear them. And they're sheer. And, they're sheer. They're sheer. and so and your thumb would just pop right through. Right. Especially if you were nervous, right? And so you're going oh, of fast course. and yeah. So, yes. Someone engineered those things. Yes, yeah. it's true. It wasn't a woman, I bet. But that the, my interview at the lab, I think about it now, and it was really funny. Big hole in one knee, my pantyhose, and every single, I, I, it was a panel interview where I met with six different people individually. And every time I met with someone, they offered me a cup of coffee. And I didn't get lunch along the way and I hadn't had breakfast. And so by the time I got to the last person and I had had eight cups of coffee and nothing in my stomach, I was a jittery mess. And then I got back out to the rental car to, to go home and, and the car had been hit and the trunk wouldn't close. <laughs> I thought, well, that's it. That's, I mean, I'm, I, this is just all the signs point to know. Right. This is not the job for me. I will go move to Arizona, back to home to Arizona and, and, and take the other job. And it went exactly opposite of that. The other job that, that I thought things went really well at said, thank you, but no, thank you. The lab operated in extremely quick fashion and um, offered me a job two weeks later, which for government is very fast. Yeah. Wow. And, and then I started six weeks after that. Just, I'm really curious, because this is the part of the story I don't know. Like, we don't talk about this very often. Just what was it like to move from Seattle? Like, how did you find a place? Who did you, did you stay with somebody? How did all of that go? Without, without having the internet to rely on, like, <laughs> where can I find an apartment in Berkeley? Yeah, well, they had these books, like the Thomas Register. <laughs> so I was very fortunate because I, you know, have family in San Jose and, I have a cousin and she and her husband went to Cal, Berkeley, and they had friends that still lived in Berkeley. And they called the friends and said, hey, our, our baby cousin is, is moving to the area. Do you think you could put her up for a couple of days um, while she finds a place? So I moved, I moved in with them and a couple of days became, I wanna say six weeks. I mean, they were great, but there was an, uh, you know, there was an apartment finding agency that, and you looked in the paper and you went to the apartment finding agency. My mom flew over for a weekend to look at apartments with me. And I will not, the place that I looked at right before the apartment that I ended up in, my mom was with me. <laughs> I remember it was like a basement studio in somebody's house and it had, it had a lock on the owner's side not on the but not on the on the tenant's side so they could lock you in or yes. lock you out but you couldn't yes. lock yourself in 
Right. And my mom took one look at that and she said, no, 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 no. Come on. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, it's good that your mom was there because that's the kind of thing that, you know, a 20 something year old person doesn't necessarily think about. I was, I was getting to the point where I was just desperate to be settled. Mm -hmm. I I didn't want to be in somebody's guest room any longer. I already felt like I was imposing on them. It was hard enough to sort of be finding my way at my job, to not have a home base, to not have somewhere that was like a sanctuary or reprieve was, was really hard. So yeah, I was, I was ready to be like, I will take it. And my mom's like, absolutely not. I'll just put a dresser in front of it. I, I, I remember thinking that way. Yeah. So then you find your place and you, that was, you were there for a long time. Six years, seven years. Oh, in that yeah. apartment? Yeah. yeah. I love that apartment. And that apartment was important for a number of reasons, but that apartment was important because it was walking, it was walkable for work. And I didn't have a car for the first three years I worked at the lab. How long have you been at the lab? In February, it'll be 25 years. When you started there, was this like, this is where my career is going to be? No. Have that? No. Okay. My degree is a bachelor of science in mechanical engineering with honors with a fluid dynamics emphasis. And what I thought I wanted to do when I was in school was go into automotive engineering. And it turned out that if you want to go into automotive engineering, you have to live in the Midwest. And I am not a fan of snow. Well, especially at that time. Yes. In the early 90s, you would have had to go to Detroit. Yep basically, or surrounds, there's, you know, like some parts of Indiana and stuff like that, that do a lot of like manufacturing for the auto industry, but like, I have a few friends who went that direction and, and they, one of them will tell you, oh, you, you have that car, go open the trunk, look on the left-hand side, there is a, you know, there's an accessory box if you open that, you'll see on the left-hand side in the accessory box, there's a little clip that, you know, and that's what I designed uh. because that's really, it, they're so complicated. It ends up being like that, but in your mind, that's not what you want it to be. Nobody wants to design, nobody goes into mechanical engineering to design a right. clip. Exactly. Right, you're think you you want to do the big picture stuff. You you want to do anyone wants to do the stuff that's going to revolutionize a car, or you know it's gonna it's gonna send a person to the moon, or best submarine, right, or whatever yeah, it is, yeah. right? So I I Kosha to answer your question. I thought I would be there three or four years, and then I thought three or four years, and then I'm going home. I'm going to go back to Arizona. I want to be near my family. Um, I'm not yes. sure about the Bay Area. Right. It turns out we both felt like that, right? I'll be here a couple of years. I want to be back to my family. And then after a while you go, no, I'm going to be here longer. I'm not sure I want to move back to my family so much. Well, and then you, found, I mean, you found family there yeah. too. So Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So to keep us on the actual real topic that we're here to discuss. It's not overhead bins. Right, right, right. Or pantyhose. living in the Bay Area. What was the first couple of years like at the lab? Because you weren't doing this when you started. 
you weren't doing the current job that you have, no. the current work that you have when you started there. The, the, the first, like the first six months was really hard. It was, I mean, in terms of integrating, um, I mean, there have been moments of difficulty all along the way, but those first six months were really challenging. And it's the kind of thing that now I would like to imagine there's more conscience around it. There's more thoughtfulness, for instance. I mean, when I started there, they, the space that I was put in with my computer and, uh, and all of that was, it looked very much like um, a receptionist space, right? It had, it had sort of a counter and then the computer over to the side so that people could look in and, and see you. It wasn't like, um, it wasn't an office, a cubicle office space. It, it read from a visual standpoint, it read as a receptionist space. And, and so many people who came in treated it as such. And I was, I, I was isolated from my management. They were all in a different part of the building. And so none of that None of that was seen. And, and I, I, that is one of those things that for, for me, as I'm hiring now, it's something that I'm very aware of in terms of what does the space that this person is going to go into look like? Um, because that mattered. And it was, it was, yeah, that was, it was insulting to be automatically assumed that I was the new secretary just because I had worked so hard. I didn't, it's not derogatory. No, I don't. I mean, the assumption is derogatory. Yes. The bigger point here is that, that there's a lot of optics and the message that's being conveyed by the system, by the employer, by the, you know, whatever, you know, the big picture, um, the powers that be about what does it look like to put a young woman in a space that looks like a receptionist would be sitting there, regardless of what they're actually doing. What's the perception that people will take? What does it look like? And then how does the feedback affect the person sitting there? That if you're constantly being interrupted, oh, can you, can you tell me where the, this person's office is? Or um, can I use your phone? I need to make a phone call. Or where's the restroom? Where do the water bottles get stored? Can you sign for them? No, I, we have water bottles. Exactly. That's a setup that's problematic and that nobody's paying attention to what the setup looks like is inherently like, that's the problem. Not that someone's like, there's no like Monty Burns finger tenting, ha ha ha, let's make it shitty for her yeah it's it ended up being shitty because nobody thought, thought about it, it. Well, and i think mm -hmm. you know that crops up all these other questions if you were a man would you have been put there right if you were a man would you have felt more comfortable saying hey people are assuming that i am the secretary or the receptionist and i'm not and it's interrupting my workflow if you were a man, people wouldn't have assumed that you were the receptionist. So I, I think that's the, both of those last two things. I, I suspect that they would have put someone there, but I, I don't think that a man would have tolerated it the way that I did. So much of that is learned, you know, from the time that we're young, that be nice and you could be helpful. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. 
right? And it's truly, if you think about it, like the one-off to be like, where's the restroom is not a big deal because someone could ask that of anyone. But the, the, the optics that are created and the way it's disrespectful to the person doing the work, that's the problem. Correct. We have an idea of what that, what that space looks like and who does work in that kind of space. Exactly. And when the who does work in that kind of space looks like who's supposed to be doing work in that kind of space, you assume that well, about what the work is. And then you just throw in the whole like, and women have been conditioned from a very young age to be helpful and not to rock the boat. And you're trying to make a good impression because you've just been there for a little bit and you're trying to be like, okay, I, you know, like you're just, we all do this. Okay, well, let me just try and get through this. And I don't want to make a big stink and I want people to like me. And, you know, I want to be seen as part of the team. So if I'm complaining about this, it's then it's like disruptive. That's all of that. There's a whole like psychology around and research on, you know, the idea of tokenism. And I know, I think it was Conan O'Brien's mom was a lawyer, like way back when she was the only one at her law firm who was a woman and she wasn't allowed in the executive lunchroom. And so they set up a card table for her outside. So she looked like a receptionist secretary, right? And Conan O'Brien was saying like that she, he would go like, mom, why didn't you say something? And she's like, oh, we just didn't fuss about that. When you are the token, that was essentially the quote price you paid to be part of that club. And so you sucking it up and, you know, answering where the bathroom is a hundred times a day and signing for water bottles was the price you had to pay where a man wouldn't have tolerated that. No, I'm not the secretary. Go ask her, right? It was the price that I thought that I had to pay. Now, whether it had to be paid, I can't speak to whether it, the trajectory of my career would have been different if I had started out right away with, uh, this is not going to work for me. I definitely moved into a place later in my career where people would, for whatever reason, I was not still in that receptionist area but would come to me and say things uh like oh we're out of we're out of toner okay great thanks thanks for letting me know don't tone things i won't tone anything right unless that was that was like if you're gonna print something we're out of toner yeah it was no it was more we're out of toner will you order some and i got to the point no no you can do it would you say that this has been a an underlying thread of your experience pretty much the entire time you've been at the lab, which is this sort of not overt sexist, misogynist behavior where it's like, oh, you can't do that. You're a woman, right? That's like a lot. And you can't even say that anymore. Nobody, if someone said that, then you would like, that would be a big problem. But this like, hey, can you do this for me? Hey, can you just manage stuff? Absolutely. I, but I think that we see that not, I don't think that's unique to the lab, right? That it's that, and we've talked about it outside of work too. It's about the emotional lifting, right? The expectation that somehow if there's going to be a retirement party or if there's going to be a birthday thing or, or if the kitchen space gets dirty, that somehow or another, that's just going to be taken care of. And I don't think that that is unique to the lab. What I think 
is potentially unique to the lab. And of course I can't speak to everywhere, but is that because of where it started in this groundbreaking World War II ending science, right? That started there, that was very male, that's been very science focused. And, and let's face it, you know, we've only seen women really move into the hard sciences in a meaningful way. There hasn't been the kind of growth in, in mindset that I think is necessary to make it an inclusive environment. Less of the, can you organize the birthday party or that kind of thing? Because I just refuse to do that. I No. And I, maybe, and I might've missed out on things because I, I established early on, I, I'm not going to buy your kids stuff. I, I mean, like Girl Scout cookies, candy bars. I'm not, I'm not signing up for your kids marathon or run around or any of that stuff. And that's across the board. I don't do birthday parties. I don't do my own birthday. I'm not going to do anyone else's birthday. I'm not going to go to lunch. I'm not because I just don't want to get caught in that. Now, if I had done some of those things, would it have changed what my career looked like? Maybe. But I also, the trade-off for me, for what was important to me would have been too much. And I, and I would probably be broke. But what there were, were just the little things things behind the scenes that you were never sure did that happen or not and that has been that has been the hardest part of my journey in my career is the is the the questioning of if I'm the only one who experienced it and I have no female peers to talk to about did this happen to you did it really happen because when I talked to someone else it didn't happen to them then is it personal? Is it gender focused? Is it project focused? Does, do these people just not like the project that I'm working on? But that introduction of doubt has been the hardest thing for me to manage, to overcome. And I would say I'm still, I still have not overcome it. You find that that was focused in certain parts of the lab, like that kind of unique experience that when you talk to your peers, everyone's like, no, I, that was, I didn't have that experience or um, no, I, I understood that differently or it didn't, you know, I didn't get that. Or was that, does it seem to be like, re- regardless of where, what space in the, cause I know that the lab has like, it's got like a manufacturing, the shop where like they actually make stuff. And then there's like, you know, this, this division, that division, was it unilateral or like that? Or was it like very much focused on certain parts of your job? Well, again, I can't speak to the whole lab, but it was definitely, it was definitely more the, the higher level items. I, I, it has been hard for me because we've, we've had a whole generation of people retire and this is related, believe it or not. The people that I found to be the most supportive, the individuals that I can point to in my career that never questioned my intelligence, my job title, my um, judgment call, uh, my ability, were all 
I think what we would think of as, as blue collar workers, our technicians, our machinists, the less than a dozen people who met me at 20 something and respected me immediately right out of the gate. And that lasted until they left. That was not true as much on the white collar side of my career. And, and, and I would never have predicted that, right? I mean, I took my car in to get tires put on it and I was, they tried to charge me more than my roommate. And, and absolutely not, I'm not gonna pay that. I know what I cost him, that's what I'm gonna pay. And that, and only that. And if you didn't already have the tires off of my car, I would go somewhere else. That was more what I expected, but that was not what the reality was. The reality was that those men in these very specific hands-on, I mean, they were just, they had these skills that were so important. I have so much more respect for that. They never questioned me. Was there ever a woman who's in the machine shop that in, in your tenure at the lab, were there ever any female machinists? There, there was one. Yeah, there was one. She left after two years, I want to say. No, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with your experience. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say that didn't happen or whatever, but what I'm, the theory I have in my head is somehow there's a competitive aspect between white collar, white collar people and blue, you know, like you could never really do a machinist job. Like you could, but this, you couldn't just like start doing it. Right. Uh, Yeah. So I wasn't a threat. Yeah. So you're doing your job and they're doing their job and there's no threat there. And you both need each other. They also know I couldn't do your job. So mutual respect, you make these things and, you know, I would have to go back to school and I'll learn, like I'd have to learn how to do that. But your peers, there's a lot of threat there. And we heard this when we interviewed Susan, who is a lawyer, we heard the same thing. So she represents uh, firemen fire people, firefighters, <laughs> fire people, firefighters. And, and, and it's the same, it's plays out exactly the same way. She's like, look, any of the sexism I experience, the misogyny experience isn't from my clients, the firefighters. They're like, nope, you're on my side. It's from her peers, lawyers on the other side who are like doing things like, Oh, those shoes look comfortable because she can't wear heels or so she's wearing like vans or whatever, right? Like that's supposed to be hurtful. Or why are you being so aggressive when her male peers are acting exactly the same way? Yep. I, I think that's exactly it's that is exactly it. I, I have never thought of it as competition, but I always felt like, look, there's enough work to go around. Like I'm not trying to take your job. I just want to have I want to be empowered and have the tools to be able to do my job and be, and frankly, to be left alone to, to do it. Do it. But that was definitely something we heard from Susan too, which is like somehow having a woman in a job that that's been, maybe not even feels like, but that is largely held by men. There is an implicit threat that men feel just by having you there. And so it's like they don't even know that they're doing and 
I know enough of your experience to know that there are people who totally knew what they were doing, but this sort of low level stuff about like, hey, we're out of toner. It's almost like people are not aware of what they're, the message that they're sending, right? Like- It's the same thing as putting you in the receptionist space. Yeah. Yeah. When I graduated from college, um, not the national average of women in mechanical engineering was 17%, which was, that's pretty good. But by the time you get to my level, which is, you know, the end of mid-level, uh, beginning of senior level, you're down to less than 2%. And that attrition rate is, is horrible. I, I, I mean, because what that means is, as you all know, that it means that there end up being no women in leadership. There is no one to look up to. You do not see a path for yourself because there is no one like yourself in a position that you want to be in. And that is really troublesome. That's why representation matters, is that if you can see yourself on the screen or in the boardroom, then you can go, oh, I can do that, right? And if you don't, the implicit idea through thread is that, oh, maybe people who look like me just don't do that. It's not possible. I might want to do it, but it's not possible. The other side of that is back to, you know, the beginning of my career, which was, you know, not having someone that I felt like I could go to and say, Hey, so this is happening. Is, is this, is this normal? Should I just get used to it? Is, is this okay? Did this happen to you? Is it, is it personal? Is it, is having someone to normalize your experience to, to validate what you're going through is, I mean, that is invaluable, right? It's just, you know, I have, I've taken my own misturns and I don't, I, I try really hard not to give career advice, but, but every time we have hired women, I have always in engineering, I have always made an effort to reach out to them and go to lunch and say, you know, we don't have to be friends, but I am here if something happens if at any point you have questions about what you are experiencing, you can come to me. And since I am not your supervisor, we can have a dialogue about it. But I feel comfortable doing that. It won't go any further because having, having a safe space like that can make all the difference. I always knew that about you, that you had that, that openness and that generosity to give of yourself and to try and help other people in a, in a way that you didn't have available to you. But it also it's such a, such a huge part of shifting what is an entrenched culture of an organization to be more inclusive, to create opportunities for belonging, to, to, for, to name, like just starting from the place of naming, this is happening. And it doesn't have to be blameful necessarily, right? I think so often too, the fear about naming it is that, well, it's not this person's fault or these people are all bad. No, we can say this is happening, right? All passive voice. This is happening and this is responsible for it. This is a fact, forces are responsible for it. And therefore we're gonna shift it in this way. Like, and it always has to be intentional, but unless you know that there's a problem, unless it's named and acknowledged, you can't make any difference. So at least sort of lifting that up and being like, 
look, as a woman, don't leave the lab because you're not sure. Come talk to me before you decide to leave. At least we can normalize it. Don't doubt yourself. If something happens and you're calling into question your ability, let's talk that through. Because that's that was what hurt me, was that I got to a point where I, I questioned my competency at such a deep level that I didn't feel like I had options to do something else. Whereas I think that if I had someone to say, okay, look, this is, it's not okay. What is happening? It's not about your ability or your talent or your intelligence. It is a systemic issue. It is still not okay, but do not internalize this as something that you are doing wrong or that you have mistread somewhere. This is, this is, this is a problem that is endemic and, and we're working on it because I think that is also, that is a big part of why, and this is speculation on my part, but why women leave engineering because it just gets exhausting to, to be defending yourself outwardly and doubting yourself inwardly. That's a battle that can only last so long before you just go forget it. Right. Yeah. I never, never thought about it that way because it creates so much internal friction where you have to be one, you have to present yourself one way but you feel totally different inside like that. I mean, that you're right, is a recipe for people being like, oh my God, no, I'm tired of fight, fighting my internal battle. Yeah. Yeah. That like, I just want to go somewhere where I'm not exhausted at the end of the day, trying to convince myself of something I'm not sure about to start with. I will say that this, this upgrade project where we started, I, I'm really impressed by it. First of all, the project itself hired a woman to manage the whole project. And she is exceptionally competent and, and assertive. And it's not, it, it does not, it just comes across as a leader, as a leadership role, right? Some, I think that some people rail against a woman in a leadership role like that, but she just, it, this is her job and she does her job. And then we also have three women that are in charge of our subsystems and there are only five subsystems. So three fifths of the leadership for that are women. And there are also exceptional women who make no apologies for who they are or for standing up for their people in meetings and their you know, whatever that, whatever it is, their people, their budget, their, their schedule. I admire the way that they, they handle themselves and they handle their groups and they, and it shows in the progress of their subsystems. That to me, to have four women at the two highest levels is enormous. When I, when I started at the lab, I think there were seven women in engineering. And there were none of them in leadership roles, none. And so that is very encouraging to me because it's so clear that they were hired because they could do the job. They are active about looking out for their people, whether that, regardless of gender. And I think, you know, I think it's, 
you do see some, I, I have not experienced it, but I understand that it happens the women against women. And I, I don't see that happening. And that to me speaks to a culture shift that I am really hopeful for. That is really encouraging. I think the progress is always slow, but in the space of say 25 years, you're seeing, you know, very few women in engineering on, you know, very, no one in leadership roles on a big project to having a high percentage, over 50% of leaders on this huge project being women and nobody being, whatever weirdness about it is happening at a level that cannot be detected, right? If people have internal weirdness about it, that's on them, but it's not a systemic, like, you know, it's, it's not, it's not coming out in the, in the process. Right. They're not, they're not spoken over in management meetings. They're not, you know, their, their input is taken on face value, at least as just as important as their compatriots. So I think that change is coming. I, I don't think that I will see it completely changed. Well, no, but I've said this both of you have heard this one, you know, we shouldn't despair because the world feels unchangeable. We don't are not required to complete the work, but we're not afraid to abandon it either. Right. Because this is hard, forget it. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that people don't shouldn't take care of themselves and like persist in situations where the, it's traumatic, but that change is possible. It just always takes a long time. The second thing I've talked, I'd certainly have talked to Hush about this is like my, I see my job it's just take the baton as far as I can. I'm not gonna complete the whole marathon. I'm not gonna make it all the way around the track. This is a relay. I take this as far as I can, I rest, and then maybe I can pick it up and go later, but you just do what you can. And I, I personally have always admired how much you just do what you can to make your workplace better for people who are coming in after you. And not just young women, although that's definitely been a part of it, the way I know that you have been trying to onboard your team and be supportive for them and sort of direct them, to, like instead of what you got, which is like, figure it out, here, here's actually some more direction. This is going to be helpful. First of all, it's good for your team, but also like, I want you to be successful here. What is it going to take for you to be successful? If they're successful, I look good. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's enlightened self-interest too, right? That's but, a lot of it for sure, but still. And this I sounds so super corny, but at the crux of it, I, I actually feel very strongly that science for science sake, being curious, looking for solutions to problems we don't even know we have yet, just fostering curiosity and being good stewards of taxpayer dollars, all of that is really important. I actually feel really strongly about all of that. And the, and the lab, that is what the lab should be doing. And, and in order to be very, to, to be as successful as possible, it has to be inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. So second to last question then. It's a great point for us to, to move forward, which is what would you have told yourself or 
my younger, you know, my older kid who says, maybe I want to go into engineering one day or cautious kid, maybe I want to go into engineering one day. Uh, what would you tell them about your experience or like what they should think about or try and do or? Well, I think there are two parts of that, right? There is the, there's the academic career part of like, if you really think you want to do this, you like, you need try to get some hands-on experience, try to find a hobby that is, that focuses your energies in whatever it is you're interested with in that discipline, whether that's mechanical, so hands-on something or electrical, you know, get some, get some kits and work on things to spend some time in that discipline the math and the science and do some informational interviews. And please, when you go do your informational interviews, make sure you have questions to ask the person. Do not expect them to carry the conversation. So there's that, right? And I would also say like, you don't have to go to MIT to have a successful career, to have a rewarding career. It's a fantastic school, but you don't have to go to the best of the best to be the best. But in terms of a career, I, I struggle with that one a lot because there have definitely been times in my, in my job in the last 30 years where I thought, boy, if I could go back to that 15-year-old, I would sure as heck tell him to do something else because it has not been easy. And I don't... I don't think that if I had had a family, I could have maintained this career because I just would not have had any more energy or emotional input for anyone else. I I struggled enough at times keeping myself together. And that's neither here nor there. Um, It's important. I think it's important to know or to note that young women female presenting people, right? Not even women, but female presenting people going into fields where there have, where it's been highly male dominated. And that is a operating in a culture where you don't fit in and you have to create a place for yourself means that it's going to take a lot out of you. And that women in particular are caretakers at home they are the emotional, they do most of the emotional labor. So that's a piece of something to consider, which is, hey, this, so you might have to pick between your job and your family. Not because the job won't let you do it, but because you're not able to take care of all the, your family, yourself, and be present at work in the way that needs to happen. That's important. And like, not all of the advice that comes out of people has to be like, yeah, go like that's a really important thing for young women to know and for young men who might be listening to this podcast to understand, look, this is a price that young women pay that you can be a part of changing. Maybe you meet someone who is an engineer and you need to support her in her efforts to create a place for her at work and then don't expect her also come home and like take care of you too. I think that's exactly right. I think Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. In the same way that I would say to a young man, male presenting, hey, if 
if you go into this field, then know that you might also have to fight for that time with your family. It is a changing paradigm, but the expectation now is that you will have the availability to work late, to travel, to do all of these things. If you elect to have a family, you will have to make a decision about where that line is drawn. And and I think we're seeing more engagement with fathers and, and that should be encouraged. We're all better for that, right? So I, I would say that to either. But what I would say to women is um, gird your loins. Like, it's a tough battle. It's a battle. I think that's good advice for us all. Yeah. Actually, I think that's perfect. You don't even have to explain any more what you mean because gird your loins is your battle it's it's a battle i think that's perfect to wrap up and you know we talk about this with everyone is the idea of familect this is my fun ending question um can you give us some examples of your familect it doesn't it could be in your bio family it could be in your found family your squad i know you and shayla she are part of a real tight knit group of girls um particular I think they're all female presenting so um yeah. can you give us a few examples of the family act in your life well one that is um that is active in my house is well you're just gonna leave that pretty much just it sums up for everything um like well I, I'm gonna go walk the dog oh sure you're gonna leave <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go use the restroom or take a shower. Ah, I see you're leaving. (laughs) So essentially whenever someone in your home is leaving your immediate visual field, they could be leaving. They're leaving. Yeah, absolutely. They are leaving. They are leaving. (laughs) They are leaving, whether it's the dog or Jason or I don't know, the housekeeper. That's it. Well, when I'm there, when I'm there visiting, it's like, all right, I gotta go to the restroom. That's it. I'll never see you again. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Don, oh my gosh. Thank you so much for coming on. This was fun. I knew that you had a very rich career when it comes to, and I knew, I've known some of the struggles that you've had with, you know, being a woman in a largely male-dominated um, industry, but the way that you have held yourself and, and keep yourself accountable and you don't keep going like, well, it's just because I'm a woman. They treat me like this. Like your competency is like, it's constantly growing too. And you're doing self-improvement on yourself. And I, I think that's commendable. I feel like I have to gird my loins now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all should. No, really. right. Yeah. It's a battle. This, this could be another one where I'm going to be like, I'm not even going to say anything because it's either going to be like, thanks so much. Or it's going to be like, now there's another 20 minute conversation about how much I love. That's not a conversation. That's a one way. That's just a, that's a soliloquy on Shayla's part. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I miss you. I miss you both. We all love Don and please just come to Chicago. It's cold now, but why don't we just come to California? I'm, I'm perfectly good with that. I want to be part of this. Like, uh, now you're just going to leave. So I have to come to your space. That's fine. Well, I mean, you know, you're either going to leave or you're um, going to be tired all the time. <laughs> well, that's me. It's so weird. Yeah, no, me too. Well, I have to say, Anushka, just to finish up, Anushka was in her STEM class. There was a kid who was, Anushka gave a something for some 
programming coding thing they had to do she gave her opinion and some kid was like just let him do it don't don't be bossy just let him do it and then she came home and talked to me about it and I told her about Auntie Dawn and I told her about Auntie Dawn's 25 year or like 20 year career in engineering and I said boys are encouraged to speak up and girls are encouraged to be quiet and so the next time she had STEM and the kid goes, stop being bossy. She said, I'm not being bossy. I'm giving my opinion. Oh my gosh. That's so awesome. She said, I said it real quiet, right? I didn't say it real loud, but she said it. And I gave her the example of Auntie Dawn. So you are stewarding the next generation of engineers. I'm going to get all, I'm going to get all teary eyed. Okay. Well, we will stop then. We will just leave. Right. <laughs> just leave. Well, okay. Can I tell you? So JC, my birthday card and the inside, it has a leaf. It says, don't worry. I'm, I'm just going to leave. And then he gave me a Thanksgiving card this weekend. And the spot where the leaf is, one of the leaves is missing. He's like, I stole that for your birthday card. Oh, I love him. That That's awesome. awesome. Oh my oh. gosh. Well, what a oh way to gosh. end on a high note. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, I love you guys. We love, love you. you too. All right. Bye. Bye.